So everything you touch, when you go into the details, when you really try to squeeze out the last 10%, it, that's really when it gets complicated and you really need, it's really difficult to cover so many areas. That's really the challenge. The last you know, 5% of something is for 90% of the workers. Okay, hi, Mate. Thank you very much for joining this podcast here at the Web Summit. Uh, it's really an honor to, to meet you also in person. Thank you, likewise. And uh, I did a post even of your remark on my Instagram uh, yesterday because honestly, I'm, I'm a fan of what you're doing. Uh, Thanks. It's really, really fascinating. And uh, maybe to begin with, one thing also that uh, the listener and, and my, me, myself, and things, what all of us sometimes is not so easy, it's really to find that passion to find that dream in life yeah of course i had the good fortune of finding it but not so many people i think find it and it takes a lot of time sometimes and i would like to uh, go into you i i read that you when you were very young can you uh take us through that a little bit you already developed this passion and direction and, and dream yeah for some reason i'm obsessed with cars and technology since ever like before i can remember uh, you know i don't have a so i was born in in back that time it was yugoslavia now the part where i was born is bosnia and bosnia is the second poorest country in europe and where i was born is the poorest part of bosnia <laughs> so there were no cars there were no roads it's not a great start for developing a hypercar huh? yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and like you know nobody had anything to do with cars like my family or something like that like just normal people and i i was for some reason obsessed with cars since ever and you can't remember where that first spark came from no uh my grandfather had an old uh, uh volkswagen beetle and my parents told me that i used to pretend when i was a baby that my hand hurts so that they get me <laughs> behind the wheel of the car and then i would grab the the steering wheel and i would remember uh, i would forget that i was pretending that my hand hurts <laughs> so that was before i could talk when i was less than a year old so i don't know where that obsession comes from and forever i was just obsessed with cars then when i was older I grew up in Germany during the war, so we, uh, I looked at, you know, in German um, television shows like on DSF there was Automotor uh, Sport uh, and stuff like that. I was reading all the magazines from beginning to the end. I knew, you know, the diameters of the discs of all the cars on the market, you know, I was really obsessed. Uh, so I'm lucky today that uh, my life is still evolving around cars, that I'm doing what, what I really love to do, and that's, you know, more the technology behind the cars, but also cars themselves. I just think they are such an incredible combination of technology, art, you know, beauty, uh, functionality. Uh, it's so many disciplines combined. You know, it's everything that humanity is doing is in there, like uh, from material sciences, connectivity, um, simulations. You know, everything that that humankind is doing is in a way embedded in, in the cars. And in the end, you know, the difference maybe to other products, like let's say highly complex products like planes, you know, they, uh, they have to be functional because they are bought by big corporations. But the car in the end also has to be uh, beautiful. Like you, you care about little things, like how the button reacts when you push it, like what's the feedback of that. So, so I don't think there's another product that combines all of that. And just, that's just fascinating to me. Uh, and then the next big, big, we have a common racing passion as well. Yeah. And that's where another next big step for your life came, right? No, a little bit by coincidence as well, no? In the in the racing uh, path? Yeah, so um, I was first quite a lot in technology. So I was um, 
in mechatronics high school in Croatia. We moved back when I was like 14 years old. From Germany, we moved back to Croatia. And uh, I, I was in this mechatronic high school and my professor saw that I had a little gift for you know doing things Tiny on my one, own. Huh? Yeah. Small, small gift. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't really, I was like an average student. I was not a good student. But my professor liked what I was doing, so like. Can I just interrupt there? It's interesting that you say you're not, a, you were not a good student, no, huh? No. And then still you were able to create such an incredible thing. So even for the students listening, uh, if you're yeah, not, no, don't, if don't you're try not, to copy that. No, try, no, try to be good students. Even if you're not the best in, the, in, in university, don't worry. There's still huge hope yeah. that you can then find your purpose and and motivation afterwards. Yeah, exactly because I was. I didn't care about the boring stuff. I cared about uh, the the uh, the things that really interested me, and there I was really putting my effort into. So, as graduation uh, project in high school in Croatia, I have to build something physical. So I have built this uh, glove that replaces keyboard and mouse, just as a school project. My professor said that's interesting. So let's go to a competition, and I thought like, what? I'm not a I'm not a good student. So how should I go to a competition? And I didn't think anything about it. So I won surprisingly the the this local level of the competition uh then you know even more surprisingly i won it uh, on the national level um and from there on they sent me to represent croatia all around the world uh in this uh, electronics and innovation competitions and i thought i have no chance against uh you know germans japanese chinese whatever um and so that was when I was 17 years old and I came back mostly home with uh, gold and silver medals, which was great just to get started, to learn and to get the confidence that, okay, you know, I can do something that's, uh, you know, competitive against others. Uh, I made two patents when I was 17 years old, but my first, uh, you know, I, my real passion was cars. So this was, you know, electronics and stuff. So un just until then, you, re you didn't think so much of yourself, yeah? You didn't have the confidence that you were great at at innovating in technology you didn't think so no why would i i was just doing you know some stuff in my garage and i wasn't a great student so if it wasn't for that professor who i'm really thankful for you know who pushed me like you can do this uh, maybe i wouldn't have done anything of what we are doing today and what the company has become today he just gave me that confidence and like go out there try to do it and what's great about these things you know what i really also encourage you know students when they ask me what they should study and stu so on like in, in universities you have this formal student projects um, and projects like that where you really get hands-on and you really do stuff because that's the real life you have deadlines you know there is a race or something there is this competition and it has to work and you will work your ass off day and night to get it done and you know work in the i don't know in the hotel or work uh, while traveling there you know to make it work you have to learn how to present it how to get things together with everything falling apart and you know that's the real life and in the uni normal university in a normal school you don't really uh, learn that so these side projects i are i think really important you know for people who really want to uh, get into the work life soon and do something more they should not just do the university and, and school, but try to do those real things on the side. That's my opinion. No, no I understand and I agree. Um, uh, maybe we skip then to your racing activities with your famous BMW car, yeah. which then suddenly blew the engine. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted to get in racing, but 
you know, my parents didn't really listen to me, so uh, I had to wait until I was 18 years old. So when I was 18, I bought a 1984 BMW 3 Series. So uh, they didn't see the incredible driving talent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we will never know because I just raced like two times uh, with this car. So, you know, that was the, the easiest way to get into racing. Like you just buy an old rear-wheel drive car, you bear, uh, buy a couple of spare wheels and drifting. So you just you just uh, replace with old uh, tires and uh, drift around. So uh, that's what I was doing with this BMW. So that car was four years older than I am. And uh, of course, the engine blew up like after two races. <laughs> and I had this idea of like, uh, from being from Croatia, I read a lot about Nikola Tesla. So he was also born in Croatia and I was always fascinated by him. And by, especially by, by the electric motor, which is his invention, the alternating current electric motor. Um, and I was wondering, why is nobody using this perfect machine to power a sports car? Back then, it's quite difficult to imagine. Like 10 years ago, the mindset about electric cars was totally different. Now you have Formula E, you have Tesla, you have Rimac, you have other companies who make sexy electric cars. But back then, electric cars were equal to wheelchairs or to milk delivery vans and, you know, stuff like that. So um, back then it was not obvious that electric cars could be something interesting and sexy. And looking at this hole under my bonnet where the engine used to be, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to do this a reality instead of just buying. To be honest, actually, like the real story is this. I wanted to upgrade the E30 with a uh, M5 V8, like E39 Engine. So quick break, <laughs> just exclusively for you, listener. Yeah, here comes the real story. Why Rima, why Rimac exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was the real story. I, I saw some some projects on the internet where people have done these swaps, uh, put the M5 engine like B turbo and stuff like into the uh, into the E30, which was really cool, but was really expensive. Uh, so I thought uh, this other thing I had in mind is uh, something more interesting. Like that's something that nobody has done. And I wanted to show that electric cars can be uh, exciting and fast and not just, you know, some boring old dull machines. Um, so that's what I did. I converted the car to an electric car and I started to compete against gas-powered cars because there was no other electric cars to race against. And in the beginning, you know, these races, uh, drag races and drift races, everybody was just laughing like, what are you doing there with this washing machine? <laughs> they can charge their phones <laughs> on my car and stuff like that. Uh, actually, another funny story is... Uh, uh, some of the jokes were like, uh, go away with that car, Thunder will hit us. And then I was at a race where there were like 400 other cars. And it started like a big storm was coming. And everybody, you know, just parked their cars. And then the thunder uh, thunderstorm started. And the thunder hit exactly into my car amongst these 400 cars on the racetrack. So there must have been something about that's that. A, that's a sign. No? Yeah, that, that was, a, was sign. a sign. Yeah, Nikola Tesla's hand. Exactly. <laughs> So that car, you know, at the beginning, everybody was laughing, but after, and I had lots of problems, like the car would fail in the middle of the racetrack and it wouldn't really work well. But after every race, I uh, was improving the car. It improved more and more, became faster and faster, more reliable. And after some time, it started winning. In 2010, I won the first race. And in 2011, I broke five F FIA and Guinness World Records for the fastest accelerating car. Ah, so this is a drag race, yeah? Yeah, so for the okay. fastest acceleration, the eight mile, quarter mile, half mile, uh, half kilometer, kilometer, something like that. So the 100 meters, uh, zero to 100 was? With that, at that three time, 3.3 seconds 3 .3. with the 
old BMW and it was still like I didn't change any like body panels it was all steel glass you know it was really heavy um, so, but it was like the perfect way to learn I got hit by the electricity like a thousand times uh, really? yeah the batteries burned the motors <laughs> blown up the differentials fell apart and to be honest it's the most fun part of my life uh, because now you know Rimac is a 500 people company almost uh, there is lots of things that you know you have to do to manage the company to keep it survive and so on that time in the garage fooling around with the BMW or preparing it for the next race that was really the most fun part and but your ambition there was just to prove that you could build that race car on electric power which could beat everybody else it was quite simple at the time or was there a bigger vision already no i i, I wanted to make a business out of it from the beginning um, and in the beginning i thought i will make a conversion business so to help other people convert electric cars like regular cars to electric it seemed like so far out that electric cars will really become mainstream and i started with that and then i realized that this doesn't really make sense and i still get this question today a lot like can you convert this of this car to electric and so on and i realized that doesn't really make sense because the electric propulsion is so different than the combustion engine and for every car you have to change a lot of things and so on so so it's never worthwhile really to it, it's a cool hobby to convert your car to to uh, electric car but it's never going to be a real business lots of people have tried that uh, tried that and it didn't really work so then i basically was inspired by uh, christian Königsegg and uh, horatio pagani I knew that hundreds of people have tried to build their own car and that so many have failed that the car industry is one of the most difficult to get into. It's the industry with the highest entry barriers. Um, but I thought if these guys have made their cars and, and I was so admiring them. I was so admiring Christian from Königsegg and Horatio. Did you have the privilege to meet them in yes. that time? At that time, no. no. Now we are friends. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at that time, uh, it's also a little bit difficult really to remember that. I I'm also a little bit surprised. Like I know I was in one year, I went to Geneva to the motor show and I wanted to move to meet Christian. I knew about him, you know, but I, I didn't really know how he looked like. Today, it's really strange. Like you have millions of YouTube videos, but back then probably there wasn't. So, so it's difficult to remember. So I ran into his father And he gave me his business card, Christian's business card. And I told him about the BMW. I wrote him an email and what I was doing. And Christian is a very, very smart guy. So uh, he knew that electric cars will become a hot topic. So he said, okay, cool. It's really interesting what you're doing. So please keep me posted. So I was sending him updates back then and so on. So in that way, we, we kind of met. Uh, but it was a lot later than we that we started to work together. So yeah, I wanted you know from this BMW to make my own car. And at that time, I met Adriano, who is today our head of design. Uh, he was working for GM in Rüsselsheim, in Opel, actually. And I was just a college student, and we decided to make a car together. And uh, he was doing the design, I was doing the technology, and we wanted to make like a real proper electric supercar, and not just making supercar electric, but actually taking all the advantages that an electric powertrain can give you to make a better sports car so we thought like that's going to be the sports car of the 21st century so one of the things that we wanted to do uh, with electric powertrains for example you can have four motors one for each wheel where you can control each wheel independently uh, very precisely so for example you can have three wheels accelerating each at a different rate and one wheel braking that's something that you cannot do um, with a traditional powertrain And it's something that allows you to have uh, degrees of freedom that are not possible with, with a combustion engine. So that was really the, the idea to make the next generation sports car. 
And we were just two guys trying to do something that we knew it's nearly impossible. Sounds very simple, huh? Why not? Yeah. Let's just go in our garage, the two of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Make, let's make the fastest sports car in the 21st century, no? Yeah, that was easy. That was quite <laughs> in Croatia, in the, in the middle of nowhere, yeah. for the automobile industry. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> another topic. Like when I started, I went to the University of Mechanical Engineering in Zagreb, because Croatia. Like, if you Google automotive industry in Europe and you go to the pictures, and the first picture you get is like dots of the European map where the car industry is, where they have suppliers and so on. So it's not just Germany and France. Is there any dot in Croatia? It's the only country in Europe that doesn't have any dot. Uh, so unfortunately, there is not a lot of industry. In I mean, Croatia is such an amazing country, such a beautiful country. H have you been to Croatia? I don't think so, no. no. Oh, no, no, I have. I, no, no, sorry, I have. I've done a boat uh, little uh, vacation. Okay, there. yeah, so you know it's beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. really stunning, yes. It's, it's, yeah. it's, I think, the most beautiful country in the world, but not for industry and especially not for the car industry. So I went to the University of Mechanical Engineering in Zagreb and told them I want to make an, a car and... I have already proven with my BMW that I know a couple of things about it. And they told me, uh, don't do that. It's impossible to do that in Croatia. The sooner you, you, you give up, the less people will go under with you. So I realized, <laughs> okay, nobody can really help me in Croatia. So I have to try to do it somehow. Um, and yeah, that's, that's uh, how it started, basically. That's amazing. And then uh, how did you manage to get funding then to get the first uh, steps going? I mean, you had this great vision. You had proven on your BMW that you have the competence to get technology up to a certain level. But then what were the steps to go out there and, and get backing to, to make this vision reality and actually make this phenomenal concept one suddenly uh, exist? Yeah, that was the most difficult thing. And my job mostly for the, from the beginning of the company until today, my job is to... Uh, find the investors and you know negotiate with them and uh, manage to help to keep the company surviving like i just read a um, or just listened to a interview from uh, elon musk where you know he has done lots of things and he said the most difficult thing in his life is to keep a car company alive <laughs> that, that's really really in incredible you agree <laughs> Uh, so the odds of us surviving any of the stages where you were were almost zero what was so, your toughest uh, toughest period all the time. All the time. Uh, so actually, the tough period was last time, but the beginning was really difficult because so there we were, just Adriana and myself, and we had sketches and renderings and 3D um, models and stuff, and you know we weren't sure if we like what's the plan. And then there was a guy uh, from Croatia who, who by coincidence, you know, he read about the stuff I was doing with the BMW, like there is a green BMW beating gas-powered cars <laughs> at racetracks. And he said, I work for a royal family in the Middle East and they are always looking for interesting investments. So what can you show me? Like I can show to them. And we put together a little brochure. I still have that. And there was like the specifications of the car, renderings, whatever, everything was virtual. Like nothing existed really other than the BMW. And he called me and said, the guys want to order two cars. I was like, great, but there is no company. There is no car. There's nothing. And uh, then the next day he called me, how much do you need? And I started to put together a business plan. Of course, I had absolutely no idea <laughs> how much money it takes. I had absolutely no idea what it takes to build a car. But of course, very important, don't, never show that, huh? Uh, yeah. Show, show you have everything under control. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be super planned out. Yeah. Well, actually... Uh, so you're a good showmaster as well then, yeah? A good I'm actor. Quite, I'm quite bad at that, actually. <laughs> like, the, uh, I, I learned there's so much hot air in this industry 
there's so many you know newcomers that disappear the next year and you know show something but never prove that they have done this stuff so we have this other approach like we, we are totally open like anybody can come into our company uh, like on our website just go fact factory tour and see absolutely everything we do even if it's the you know somebody who wants to exactly copy our business model we had also guys like that that came there and you know we asked them okay so what do you guys do well actually we want to do this this and that and hmm, that sounds very similar <laughs> uh, so we don't have any problem with that we are very open and uh, we try to be very honest uh, because there's so much there in this industry and I think it's it's important to to really be realistic so um, yeah well, we really had no idea what we were doing and uh, the initial team that I put together uh, nobody has done anything like that and uh, I couldn't find anybody in Croatia who was doing that if you go now to our website there are 120 openings uh, on our website and it's not that there are, that we cannot hire the people in Croatia who, who can do these jobs there are simply no people who have done anything similar like that like if you have crash simulation specialist or uh, aerodynamics you know uh, specialist stuff like that nobody has done anything like that there so we had to build up all the competences uh, initially on our own because we couldn't afford to hire foreigners with those experiences um, so yeah it was tough from every every perspective from the funding which was the most difficult part uh, from uh, technical side from you know managing the people grow like just growing a company to this level like almost 500 employees right now like how to structure that how to uh, get the processes in place how to do the the organization of the company uh, all of that is is a very difficult learning curve especially if you haven't done anything before because i started a company when i was you know just 20 years old so yeah it was a wild ride the last 10 years were really something uh, Interesting. And, <laughs> and how do you personally cope with some sometimes where you have been then close to failure? How do you personally uh, cope with those situations? Is it are you, are you scared or, or what is the motivation to to keep pushing? Um, yeah. Well, we are almost always close to to failing. Really, it's it's incredible. Like I, I don't think that anybody really understands that uh, except the people who are really close to me or in the beginning of the team. Like in the in the first six years, I never had the money to pay the next salary on the account. We never had that like sounds crazy. You know, in startup world, you, you say like runway. Yeah. Like that's how long you have to survive. And when I read about some companies that got nervous when they got a six-month runway, <laughs> I was like, what's a six-month runway? I would kill for that. We always survived somehow just in the last moment. We just made it to the next uh, month and so on. We had situations where we couldn't pay the rent, so the people wanted to throw us out. Uh, they, the electricity company cut our electricity. We had like all of that stuff. But there are so many, like one of the public moments that people like to mention to me a lot is the Hammond crash. Yeah, I was going to touch on that later, actually. <laughs> yeah, so like that's that's a public catastrophe that happened and that everybody knows. But there are like a million of these that, you know, are in another way, you know, not public. Like, uh, you know, problems with investors, with, uh, I don't know, with some projects, with technical, like... So you have all of these roadblocks that each of them can cost you the life of the company, each of them. And the more of them there are, the more likely you are to fail. But they are going, like, it's never going to be perfect. Every day, like, I know if I don't look at my phone, like now when we are talking, when I don't look at my phone for one hour and I look at it now later, that there will be like one middle catastrophe. <laughs> I hope not the big one. Uh, I'm so sorry. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you that you're taking the time anyways. No, because, you know, there's so much things happening and yeah, always there are huge problems and you have to deal with that. Uh, my job in the end, uh, 
problem it, solver <laughs> exactly and that's that's really uh, like the frustrating part in the end because everybody comes to me with their problems with like this doesn't work this is a problem this guy has doing this stuff and you know so the ceo in the end is the guy who is responsible and who has to solve all of these things uh, but of course you need a really good team behind that to to rely on to to make this possible but can it still be enjoyable then if it's just problem solving uh, all the time that's why i said the the garage was the most interesting <laughs> and uh, coolest part of, of the history because now I deal all the time with Excel sheets, with uh, financials, with uh, investors, with contracts and um, very little time and focus remains for, for the interesting stuff, for, for the technological part. Um, so it is still fun. It's fun to see our results, to see, you know, what, what motivates me is just to, co to take a walk through the company, see the people, what incredible things they are doing, what a team we have built, how dedicated they are. And that's like, you know, we have to keep this going. Like this, this has to survive. This has to uh, deliver on those things that we want to do. Uh, that's my biggest motivation. But day-to-day -day stuff, it's really tough. Yeah. And so you've de developed a great care for your, for your business family now, yeah? Uh, everybody at Remats that, that's working so hard and, and all the technology and innovation that you've achieved, yeah? Yes. Well, you know, from one side, I think it's important. Like there are several important things. Uh, so from one side, we, we really push the limits of technology. That's what we are all about. We, you know, we don't want to be yet another company trying to do the same thing. We really are about showing what's possible, building the, the best. Um, from that perspective, it's important. From the other perspective, uh, the people that are working in the company that you know they are that we have built such a um, unique culture and unique company where so many things are happening at the same place and so advanced uh, that's important and then also for the country to show that this is possible and to attract other companies to Croatia to not be the comp the country where there is no dot of automotive industry but to really put it on that map as well so from several perspectives, I think it's important that the company uh, survives and thrives. And yeah, that, that's my job to make sure that happens. <laughs> um, moving on maybe to the Rimats. Rimats how would you pronounce it exactly? Well, in Croatia, Rimats. it's Rimats. Rimats, okay. Uh, I know many people have difficulties. Rimac, of course, with, internationally. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's okay. Uh, when I was in Germany, uh, they couldn't say Rimac, so I was uh, Rimac. So I understand that it's not a problem. So Rimac 2 coming out, when uh, when is the first one going to be sold? Or well, delivered, sorry. Yeah, uh, that, that's always what people also don't understand. Uh, selling is one thing, of delivering course. is another. <laughs> so deliveries uh, are starting in 2020. Uh, we are now uh, building the prototypes and doing all the crash testing program. So with this car, you know, you would have on one end of the spectrum really small uh, manufacturers that would maybe make two prototypes and do the full development and testing with that. On the other hand of the spectrum, you would have the big OEMs doing 500 prototypes. We want to do it properly And we are doing something. Like, we are, will produce something like 20 to 25 prototypes, because we want to do uh, first of all global homologation. So it has to fulfill all the same requirements, all the crash tests, everything, like any other car. So no exemptions because it's a small volume car. So we really want to make sure it's completely safe, like on the level of the most, you know, uh, best cars currently out there. And it's a very big program for us. It's a big step going from eight concept ones to 150 C2s. Uh, which will be even more with other variants and so on. 
Uh, and on the other side, we also have the uh, bigger part of our business, which is the components that we deliver to the other manufacturers. So the company is going through a big transition. Just in the last year and a half, we have doubled from 200 people to, uh, I think we are with something like 480 now. Um, so it's a lot of things that have to happen to make that a reality. But the biggest project is the C2 because for us, it's not just a car. You know, f- just to give you an example, people ask us, how long does it take you to build a car? And other car manufacturers, they consider that putting the parts together because they, uh, for example, other uh, supercar companies, some of them don't make one single part of their car. They have suppliers, which is, you know, also very legit. It's their part of, um, of it's how they do business. We have decided to be very vertically integrated in development and production. One of the reasons also being uh, that we are in Croatia where there's no su- really supplier base to, to do the things we want to do. So for us, for example, to... Uh, develop a part so let's say carbon fiber part you design it you engineer it you engineer the tooling you produce the tool you produce the carbon part then in the end you paint it put it on the car so it's a long process for the whole uh, for the whole chain to happen Um, so it's a lot of activity it's thousands of parts and what we do in that car for example the motor that we develop for that car we will use for projects of other car manufacturers. So the battery that's developed for the C2, it's a new generation battery, will end up in, I don't know, maybe an Aston Martin or, or another car like that. So uh, that that's much more than a car for us. It's a it's a technology demonstrator. And the infotainment, the powertrain, the battery, the, info, the, the inverter, the gearbox, all of that are technologies that we will apply somewhere else as well. It's unbelievable to me to hear this, yeah, that you are in Croatia, pioneering the way in the global automotive uh, market in all these different uh, individual spaces. Huh? This is really, really, really fascinating. And can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Rimat's uh, C2 uh, performance specials? For example, of course, the 0 to 100. I think this is for the listener going to be an incredible... Please sit down, dear listener, <laughs> yeah, because this, this number is going to be absolutely shocking. <laughs> yeah. Again, being fully honest, Marta will not very honest. (laughs) This is a very honest podcast, it seems. (laughs) Yeah, so the numbers, you know, you have in this category, the cars are sold by the numbers, unfortunately. I had also the discussions, for example, a good friend of mine is Anthony Sheriff, the ex-CEO of McLaren, and we shared this vision a little bit. You know, people want, you know, this thousand something horsepower cars, the zero to 60 is very important. So... What the C1, the concept one had a two-speed double clutch gearbox in the end. So four motors, the front motors had a single-speed gearbox, the rear motors had a two-speed double clutch. And we realized when we were driving the car, you drive it all the time in second gear, and it's so fast in second gear, it's faster than almost anything else. So you start with the second gear and you, you blow off like you really try that with you know with various cars, and it's so much faster than them in the second gear. If you put it in the first gear and do the proper launch, it's faster than anything. But that's like going from maybe 2.8 seconds to 2.2 in that uh, uh, scenario with the, with the Concept 1. With the C2, we really wanted to avoid the two-speed gearbox because it's such a big part. It's so complex to manufacture, so heavy, so uh, inefficient and so on. And we developed a completely new powertrain, inverter, motor, gearbox, everything to achieve our targets, um, which was about 2.2. Three, I think, something like that. Yeah, 2.3 was the target, uh, 0 to 100, with a single-speed gearbox and a top speed of over 350. And we managed to do that. And then Tesla came out with the Roadster, and they claimed a 1.9 second to 100, uh, and over 400 kilometers per hour. But uh, like, we know that Elon likes to overclaim a little bit sometimes, huh? <laughs> well, we'll see about, maybe with timing, but with technical uh, parameters, they were always quite there. 
so uh, uh, lots of people tell me that as well, but we'll we'll see, you know. And we said, okay, we'll sacrifice. So now the car is faster. We have now in the C2 also two-speed gearbox in the rear. Elon forced you to, change, to, to put the two-speed. Yes. <laughs> you could not accept yes. that Elon was going to beat yes. you on the 0 to 100. That was really difficult because <laughs> we already had the space for the powertrain, for the chassis, for the motors and everything. It was incredibly difficult to get more space to put a two-speed gearbox. So we had like a hundred concepts how to make that. And the gearbox is, again, incredibly complex and so on. And now we have 1.85 to uh, 0 to 60 time and 1.97 uh, 0 to 100 time. And I tell you, because of that, it's a worse car. It's not going to be a better car. It's going to be a worse car, but everybody is going to look at the papers. And why worse? Because it's more heavy, it's more complex, it's uh, more weight in the rear, not in the front, so the balance is a little bit uh, worse. Uh, it's uh, less efficient because the more moving parts and so on. But on paper, it will look better. Uh, so that's maybe something that not many people will tell you in this industry that's very number-driven. So on one side is the numbers. and what we really wanted to achieve with this car, it's also to be very functional. We want the people to, who own those cars to enjoy using them, not just put them on the garage. So one example that you, you wouldn't really notice, for example, when you go in some other supercars, you have to put your bottom on the sill of the big monocoque and then slide onto the seat. So what we wanted to do, for example, when the big door opens, so big door that you can get easily in and out, you can sit on the, on the seat and put your foot down on the, on the ground, on the floor, um, without lifting your bottom first. So it's a small sill. Sounds like a little thing, but to achieve the crash safety, the rigidness of the monocoque, to not break in the, in the front impact, for example, uh, with such a small sill, it's really difficult, especially with such a heavy car like a, like a supercar. Then um, it has lots of high-tech features with facial recognition, with uh, infotainment and so on. Uh, 600 kilometers of range with 120 kilowatt hours of battery. Uh, it, we are developing some very interesting self-driving functions. Level four, I've read, like, this is amazing. Your, your target, huh? Yeah, level four ready. Uh, so the car, so what, what's also important to understand is that a car, uh, regardless of the AI, of the actual function, just the car to be able to handle self-driving functions is developed in a completely different way than a, a traditional car. So to have the redundancies, to have the systems that are able to fulfill the safety requirements, uh, the electronics, the, the actuators, for example, with a, a hydraulic steering system, you can never achieve uh, self-driving because you don't have an actuator. How, how will you uh, steer the car or with the, with the braking system you have to have at least two redundancy levels so it's a completely different architecture of the whole car so the car is level 4 ready from that perspective but we are developing some fun so we are not developing functions like Waymo or Google uh, to get you from point A to point B what we are trying to do like going 10 years back when I said electric cars and high performance and enjoyment and so on it was like didn't work together. People didn't understand, like, how, how can an electric car be fun? And I think in the last 10 years, the mindset has changed, and Formula E and us and other people have... Well, not yet completely. Huh? It's, it's changing. It's changing, But it yes. will still take time. But I agree, electric yeah. cars are awesome. Yeah, it's different. And now, with autonomous driving, people say, this also doesn't work. Like, it's taking away the driving and so on. We want to prove that it's not the case, that it can enhance driving, it can make it more fun. What you're developing is a driver coach. So you go to a racetrack, it gives you like two perfect laps on Hockenheim, for example. And then when you take over, it coaches you uh, how to be a better driver. You know, have, for example, you as the 
as the coach inside of the car without having you in the car. Uh, so uh, like having your ideal line shown to the customers and stuff like that. But you need a sample case driver to set the benchmark for the artificial intelligence, no? No, it can be just the AI calculating the ideal uh, scenario. On a racetrack? Yeah. Because yeah. we have the robo race and everything and it still seems miles away to be able to get close with AI to what a human being or to what I, for example... Could yeah. do could do on a racetrack. You're, you're super human. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, it's it's of course taking time, uh, but uh, you know, going to first principles, there's absolutely no reason why uh, the autonomous uh, self-driving system wouldn't be better than you. Uh, oh no, I agree. But pff, what a mission! Yes, it has to be. Uh, there's lots of work, especially at very high speeds. Uh, but did, if you, it's easy, did you see my Porsche 918 video on YouTube just yeah, now? Yeah. To get the AI to do that, <laughs> I think yeah. it's going to take a bit of time. <laughs> That's what we are trying to do. Yes, <laughs> drifting, including drifting, including drifting. <laughs> yeah. So, but of course, it's a lot of work. So we are working on that. That's unbelievable. Like you, every time you th you think, okay, yeah, no more extra complications. Oh yes. You add another whole layer of complications. Yeah, how, it's, how on earth do you manage to to keep? It just seems like unbelievable. But that's really what what you said is really crucial because, for example, when we presented the first concept one in Frankfurt, we were six people in the company. It was not really the real car. It was like it took a lot of time to get it to to you know a level uh, where where we started to deliver them. But uh, at that time, maybe one guy was developing the battery for that uh, car. Now we have a department of 50 people developing batteries. It's more like uh, almost 10 times more than the whole company was back then. So everything you touch, when you go into the details, when you really try to squeeze out the last 10%, it, that's really when it gets complicated and you really need, it's really difficult to cover so many areas. That's really the challenge. The last you know, 5% of something is for 90% of the workers. Yeah, and just to tell our listeners, so Porsche bought 10% of your company, mm -hmm mainly because they were so uh, amazed and interested in your technology that you've developed, yeah, your battery system and your electric motors and, and everything else. So that's really already a testament to the incredible um, I mean, place that you're at with your company, that the global powerhouse Porsche, who even <laughs> is one of the pioneers of electric oh, mobility, yes. yeah? Yes. In, in that, uh, from the normal manufacturers, yeah? Because I think they've done a good job as well to really anticipate and, and get this mission E out on the road as yep. one of the first is, is quite cool that they've managed to do that. And still they're coming to you for your technology. So this is really very, very, very awesome. Yes, and I, I consider that one of our biggest achievements or my, one of my personal biggest achievements because um, Porsche is the perfect partner. Uh, so they have scale, they know how to produce in mass, and they are pioneers. They are on the forefront of technology. They are really an engineering company, a real, true German, like hardcore engineering company. And they have a little bit of that not developed here. Like if it's not developed here, it's not good. And they never invested in other companies. So it was really something interesting to get into this process with them. It took three years from when we met until we did the investment. Uh, you know, going through all of the uh, scan, uh, you know, the the scans of the business, the um, uh, due diligence process, meeting all of the uh, board members and stuff like that. That was really, really an interesting ride, but it's a win-win situation. You had the patience? Well, for, for Porsche, of course, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things when you ask me, like, what is my my job? Like, I was working so much on that deal. Like I went to Stuttgart, like, I don't know, five times they came to us like 10 times or maybe 15 times and contracts, lawyers, all of that. Uh, that's like really a long, long process to make that happen. Oof. 
Now to the most important question of the entire day. When could I try the concept to yes. remat? <laughs> Please. <laughs> you want one? you want to try one? I would love to try it. You have to come to Croatia. No, no, no. First you have to see how we develop it, how we make it. it that's really important, I think. Uh, that's what I'm most proud of to show you really how this process is happening and how that all happens under one roof. Like I love to, to show people around because it's uh, such a unique place where you can really see everything happening there and then you can drive a car. Uh, so let's, let's organize that uh, for, for uh, next year. And I promise I'm a better driver than Richard Hammond. Hammond. <laughs> I promise it, it will come back in one piece. Well, actually, he asked also about driving the C2, and I said, absolutely no problem. You did? Of course. Oh, yeah, come on. Not? You should never be ever allowed to drive a Rimat again in the whole, <laughs> no, why in not? The whole world. <laughs> why not? So, my, my really coming to the end, my question would be what is your vision now for how you want to impact the world or in five to ten years' time? Because you know that, well, we all know mobility is completely changing. Mm. Um, what what is your vision? Where are you going? Um, and what impact are you going to have? And and do you want to have? And it's are you a, then going to be less of a problem solver one day as well? That's a really interesting question. You know, I don't know where to start with that really because I'm a little bit torn apart. On one side, I'm a petrol head. I love cars. Like if I had the money, I would buy myself like all of the supercars, <laughs> hypercars, like combustion, hybrid, electric, all of that because I love cars. But on the other side. It's the data that tells you that this, that doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, it's for sure. I'm 100% sure that we will not own cars anymore in the future. Uh, we will not drive them anymore. We will use them as a mobility service, and it will have such a big impact on society, on people. Like, it's not just the way, like our convenience or something like that. 1.2 million people die on the roads every year. I read some analysis which says that because of accidents. And the congestion that's happening because of that, because of the health cost, because of the deaths, that there is 8% of GDP impact in the US because of that. 8% of GDP. And then congestion, 50 billion hours lost of people driving in the US uh, being stuck in a traffic jam, that has a 9% impact on GDP. So that two together is bigger than, let's say, for example, the percentage of Croatia's GDP dependence on tourism, which is huge, one of the biggest in the world combined those two things trickle down on the per mile cost of you driving the car it's the highest cost factor more than gas more than depreciation of the car so changing the mobility not owning your car not driving it is going to have a huge impact on society on productivity on health of people on absolutely every aspect of life and uh, this is going to result in um uh, in very big changes for the industry. Uh, how will car companies uh, cope with that? How will the owners of cars cope with that? How infrastructure will change? Just to give you an example, 70% of police in the US, for example, is related to traffic. So you don't need 70% of the police anymore when there are normal drivers. 40% uh, of airport income comes from uh, parking. So how does that change? 50% uh, of municipality income, like parking tickets and stuff like that, comes from cars as well. It's related in some way to cars. So the whole world can change with that. It's not just about us car guys. It's, I think, you know, capitalism needs constant growth. And with limited space and people and resources, how do you grow? And this next productivity growth, I think, will come from, uh, from uh, autonomous vehicles. And we are also working on, in different ways with 
also other car manufacturers in that. So how does that work with our supercars, you ask, of course. Um, you know, there will... To start, Thank you for asking the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's why I say it's really a difficult question to ask because we are this course role. The, cor the whole industry is going to change. I'm going to go to, to the bathroom. You can just continue. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, more near term, the, the, the company, Rimac as a company, we have the big goal of bringing the car to production, of scaling up our uh, production capabilities for our components and so on, working with the big car companies to help bring their cars on the market. But the real big changes are not that. The real big change is not electrification. The real big change is the change in mobility, and electrification will come as a consequence of that. But then you will not care anymore what powers the car that drives you. You will not know. Well, how do you care? Do you care about the acceleration of the train where you are, about the brakes in the train, about the motor in the train? No, you don't. So it's going to be completely different. So I didn't, I think, really answer your question other than uh, nobody really knows what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, uh, but everybody knows it's going to be a huge change. And we will be part of that in some way. So you want to make sure that you as a company have a big uh, impact in that space in changing the world? Yeah, we, we, we think we will. But also to tell you, in the end, you know, our grand-grandparents probably all had horses, right? And they loved their horses. And they knew, like, this is a good horse, this is not a good horse. This is a racing horse, this is a workhorse. Now we have no idea. Well, at least I don't have. And we don't own horses. Uh, but there are people who have race horses. So luckily, there will be people like us who will still have uh, supercars and will True. love them. But probably we will not be able to use them everywhere. There will be designated areas where we will use them. And we will have our race horses that still maybe run on fuel and we still drive them and so on. So there is good news also a little bit for, for petrol heads. But I think it's going to be a very small fraction of the society that will care about cars, to be honest. But I hope that that still stays. Of course, we all still want to have that space where we can drive and, and have fun and enjoy, enjoy fast cars and, and the thrill, of course. Yeah, well, huh? let's, We're counting let's, on you. Let's look sure. bet, back in 30 years at this video and see how much people will still care. <laughs> I'm really curious about that. Maybe it will not change a lot. Maybe it will change completely. We'll see. And what about you personally? You're saying you have much less fun now because you're just a problem solver, yeah? You yeah. used to have much more fun back in the day. So what about you personally? Where, where are you going to then go? I mean, I think you must strive to, again, come into a position where, where you have much more fun in, in life and, in, and in, in job or not. No, you have, like, if you want to do something really difficult like we are trying to do and something that's nearly impossible, you have to make your own choice. Like, is it... Do you want to hang out with your friends and with your family and have vacations and travel the world and see things? Then this is not for you. Like, okay, maybe an employee, but not in, in the position where you are responsible. Uh, I have made a decision for myself and I have, I'm not putting myself in front of these 500 people and one day over 1,000 people who, who are working at this company. Uh, I, I have uh, accepted that this is my job in the company and that's okay. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. And you're sure of it? Or there's every day uh, 10 moments where you think, shit, am I really on the right path here for myself? Like, you are scared a lot of times and you don't know if this is going to work out, if that's going to work out, what if this happens, what if that happens. It's really complex. But also, um, there was a lot of times when I thought, okay, this is the end. Like, no way we are going to survive this. Like, absolutely no way. And then somehow we, we still managed to, to uh, survive through the struggle. Um, Am I sure? I'm sure that I want to do this, that I want to bring the company to where I see it. Uh, but of course, there are always doubts. They, and 
uh, you know, we have come through the really difficult part of the early stage of the company, but it's still the chances, the odds are against us, I think. It's still more odds of us not surviving than surviving. It's still, you know, really difficult to build a car company, and we are still at the early stage. There's still a long way in front of us, but I think we have a great team. We have the right people, and that we can do that. So, uh, but at least we will make it that you get your test drive of the of the C2. That's the most important thing now. <laughs> so no beach holiday anytime soon then, I guess. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. I'm really uh, excited to get an insight. And uh, please subscribe to my YouTube channel then also and hit the new notification button because that's where you're going to see me drive the Remats uh, Concept 2 then at some point soon, hopefully. That would be awesome. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Mate, for a, a great insight and really fascinating um, Amazing what you're what you're creating. Yeah, really incredible, inspiring. I think for for the listener, well, for you who've listened, and for me as well, for everybody. So very cool, and we'll all watch uh, how things progress. Um, it's so going to be great to see what else you're going to achieve and how you're going to impact this mobility revolution. It's going to be really really cool. So thank you very much. Thank you.